This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. For the first time in history, nurses in the UK have voted to go on strike. James, what does this mean in Britain? How serious is it that now the NHS has decided to go on strike? So the first thing to say is that the, the, the Royal College of Nursing Service strike won't affect emergency healthcare provision. But it is going to make the waiting lists worse. And there are already 7 million people on the NHS waiting list. And I think it also tells you, gives you a preview of some of the very difficult arguments coming down the track. Because, you know, you can debate, I think the nurses want a 16-17% pay rise. Uh, you can say that's too much. But you also can't get around the fact that inflation is about 9 or 10% at the moment. And... The, the kind of pay rises that have been budgeted for are in the low single digits, not higher. So you might say, well, hang on a second. Why don't you give nurses a proper pay rise? Well, if you gave them a pay rise to compensate them fully for inflation, that would have to come out of the NHS budget. And that would, be, that would, be, that would take a big lump out of it. And if you were going to do that, then what other forms of revenue would you do to put into it? Or would you just have less spent on other bits of the NHS? I think it tells you how tricky some of these spending tax and spending issues are ahead of this autumn statement on Thursday and I think this is going to be really very difficult because it is is you have you are going to have in nurses potentially also teachers you are going to have uh professionals who are not paid very much like not you know these are they're not this is there is a tube strike in London today I think there is far there is going to be far there is far less sympathy for tube drivers who are fairly well paid than there will be for nurses people will say hang on a second nurses are not that well paid they have to do a very hard job you know and they're now being expected to take a real terms pay cut so I think this just shows you how difficult this question is going to be to manage. Isabel you are currently writing a book on the history of the NHS where do you place something as serious as this and also how will the other people within the institution of the NHS react to such a vote? I think we should start having a sweepstake on how early we can mention this book uh, in our podcasts. And uh, the, obviously, the earlier, the better for, from my perspective. Yeah, it's really fascinating because the RCN, the Royal College of Nursing, it's not a militant health union. So the BMA, British Medical Association, which represents doctors, you know, has a very sort of august appearance and a very nice uh, building and, you know, all the you know doctors. Uh, but actually, they're just sort of well-dressed street fighters. And I haven't met or read a, a single health secretary who, um, you know, from, from any political party who has liked the BMA and that largely what they say about the BMA is unprintable. Whereas the RCN is just not, you know, it, it hasn't been a constant voice of knee-jerk opposition throughout the NHS's history. As you mentioned in your intro, Natasha, this is the first nationwide strike the RCN is, is doing in its 106-year history. It was considered remarkable back in 2006 when the nurses booed Patricia Hewitt when she came to speak at their conference because they're just not, you know, it, it's just not a rowdy, it's not a rowdy trade union in the way that um, some of the other health unions or, or wider trade union movement can be. On top of that, as James said, 
nurses are popularly understood not to be well paid. And you know, we've had a lot of coverage recently of hospitals setting up food banks for their staff, including nurses. Uh, so people are very, very aware of, of quite how badly paid nurses are. And so this is an issue that health secretaries, whether it's you know in England or Scotland, have got to treat with real delicacy. And there was a, an incident at the SNP conference um, last month where Hunza Yousaf, who's a Scottish health secretary, was confronted by a group of nurses holding RCN placards and, and complaining about their pay and their pensions and the conditions that they say are very unsafe that they're having to work in. And um, he basically lost his temper with them after a little while. He kept saying to them, we're listening, we're listening. And uh, one of them said, well, hearing and listening are different things. And he snapped back, well, I definitely know that. Don't Let's not patronise each other. And underlying all of that is the frustration that James talks about, which is, you know, where would this money come from? Even if you have huge sympathy with the nurses and understanding politically this is going to be very very difficult does that mean the nhs has to meet it out of its existing budgets which it's already having to stretch to to meet those very meager pay deals it it is a really tricky situation not just because of the money but because you can't fall into the sort of normal scrappy confrontations that health ministers have become very used to having day to day with the with the bma um so it is it is really, really difficult. I just wonder, I think the the best line that Barclay and Yousaf and, um, and other politicians, Rishi Sunak, other politicians can use um, when they're asked about these strikes is to talk about the impact on the backlog and you know, the NHS in its winter crisis. But I'm still not sure that that will really buy the government that much breathing space because voters are probably still more likely to blame politicians for catastrophes within the NHS ultimately rather than even striking workers. I think one of the things as well which makes this and it's another reminder of why in some ways it's going to be more difficult than 2010 because in 2010 there was a sense and this didn't turn out to be true but there was in 2010 a sense that there were going to be huge layoffs in the private sector and so public sector workers could be expected to accept essentially you know very very limited pay deals because they at least had job security Right now, we're in a very tight labour market. People are not feeling a worry about losing their job in the same way that they were in 2010. Now, it might turn out that, that, that people are as wrong now as they were in 2010 about their logic. But I think one of the things that makes it more difficult is in 2010, there was a sense that if you worked in the public sector, you had job security. And that job security was, was, was kind of compensation for how limited your pay rise was. This time round, I don't think that argument is cutting through with nurses or with teachers. I think there is or I mean, there just is a sense that, you know, they have gone a long time uh, being subject to pay restraint. And with inflation where it is, they, they want a larger pay rise than the, than the government is offering. And James, one health minister, Maria Caulfield, tweeted today about how Actually, in the devolved areas, the vote has been different. For example, in Labour-run Wales, they overwhelmingly voted for the strikes, whereas in England, the turnout was so low, it wasn't as significant. Is this a decent enough argument to play? I mean, are they are they just clutching at straws here? I think there is something about the fact that, that because health is devolved and because this strike is UK-wide, it is going to be politically different 
than if this was just happening in England where the Tories were running the NHS. And I think it will it will make things more complicated. Now, I'm sure you will hear the SNP talk about how they operate within a framework set by the UK government that limits their ability to, to deal with the problem. But I think the fact that the Labour implied in Wales, the SNP in Scotland and the Tories in England are all having to deal with this problem. It, 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 will, it will change the political dynamics around this debate a bit. And speaking of the devolved nations, Isabel, the, the situation in Stormont has intensified today. The Prime Minister has gone to visit the Taoiseach. What is your take on everything that will happen today? Yeah, so as we've discussed on previous podcasts, even though there has been more positive mood music about resolving the standoff over over the Northern Ireland Protocol between Great Britain and uh, the European Union, um, when the sides actually get into formal negotiations, you realise quite how far apart they still are, despite a desire to bring this, you know, this stalemate, this long stalemate, to a close. Uh, but this is an attempt to at least improve relations with the Taoiseach. So uh, it's Rishi Sunak, and I think it's the first, he's the first Prime Minister to attend this British-Irish Council meeting uh, in Blackpool uh, since Gordon Brown, which was quite a long time ago now. But there's also an interesting line from Chris Heaton-Harris, the Northern Ireland Secretary. He was talking about the protocol and the regularly offered criticism that the issues with the protocol were obvious even before it was implemented. And he batted that back by saying politicians are very good at making legislation, but sometimes when something sort of lands on the ground, it, it causes unintended consequences. I'm paraphrasing him slightly, but um, I mean, aside from the issues over the Northern Ireland Protocol, this is quite a dispiriting picture of how legislators themselves see legislation. The legislative process is supposed to point out unintended consequences. And indeed, I think most people looking back through Hansard would see that said unintended consequences of the protocol were pointed out um, at the time. And to me, it shows that really it's possible to legislate and entirely ignore very valid points right up until the point at which they become physically manifested in a real crisis and then to take those concerns seriously. And we see this on so many different issues, whether it's benefits policy or Northern Ireland. And it's quite a depressing insight into how seriously MPs take their job as legislators. And just to tie this into the other most depressing thing this week, which is Matt Hancock on I'm a Celebrity, the, his one of his many arguments for why he's going and it's nothing to do with the money or the attention is that he just he wants to get his message out about dyslexia and you know he wants wants to to sort of do things for for politics and I think that says so much about how little esteem Parliament is held in that he thinks that leaving Parliament and eating things in the jungle while being, you know, sort of roundly mocked by his other campmates, is a more productive use of a politician's time and a better way of achieving things. I mean, he's, you know, most of us don't have that much power in in our lives. Matt Hancock really does because he's a legislator. So the idea that he has now more power because he's gone to the other side of the world is quite frustrating. Rant over. 
James, just quickly onto the devolved nations, and we will go back onto the jungle drama as well. What must this be like living in Northern Ireland at the moment? You know, they haven't had a proper parliament. How frustrated must they be at the moment? I think people are very very frustrated, particularly because of all these cost of living pressures at the same time. I think the reason why... I mean, initially, Chris Eaton-Harris sounded like, if you can't get this up and running, we'll have an election straight away. I think the reason why the election has been delayed is twofold. One is to try and give some time for negotiations on the protocol to see whether they can bear fruit. And the second, I think, is a recognition that if you held another election right now, the problem would just become more entrenched because the DUP would say, we're not going in until the protocol's fixed, back us. Sinn Féin would say, look how unreasonable the DUP are, they won't allow Sinn Féin first minister, that's the real reason they won't go in. And politics in Northern Ireland would just polarise yet further. So I, I think that is what is difficult. I think the, the, the big question in Northern Ireland, and I think there is a debate about whether the nature where the where where the two with the nature of power sharing is actually could be counterproductive here in, in some respects, is whether you can get a politics in Northern Ireland that focuses more on, to use a kind of dreadful cliche, bread and butter issues rather than constitutional questions. Now, there was a rumble in the jungle last night. Matt Hancock entered the campsite. And I think, one, did you watch it, James? I, I must admit, I cannot bring myself <laughs> to uh, to watch it. I find, uh, like, yeah, no, no. Just... Well, Obviously, you've probably, on a professional level, come across Matt Hancock. And he was voted by the general public to do the, one of the first Bush Tucker trials. Knowing him as you do, how good do you think he will be on one of these trials? So I think the thing about Matt Hancock, which people underestimate, is how fiercely competitive he is. Um, uh, there was when he was a special advisor back in the day there was various stories about him in various football matches with his kids bosses where you know Matt Hancock was you know was, would, would not rein himself in um, and so no I, so I think he will be thoroughly competitive and try and win he is one of these people who, who just you know that is his MO I also think that Matt and and, and People who know much more about the way the show works than me tell me. I think it's unlikely to happen. I think he will also harbour kind of hopes of kind of staying in and doing well and using that to to, to confound the people at Westminster who said he wouldn't do well. I mean, I, I think I personally think that going in there as a politician who was the health secretary in the period he was the health secretary and who had to resign for the reasons he had to resign on, I I I, I, I struggle to see the upside. For him, in you know, in how this is going to work, but but I think he, I think people will be surprised at how competitive he is. Isabel, did you watch it? No. It's just like there's there's enough that's miserable in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, lots of people from the Spectator who did watch it were surprised by the the celebrities reaction to Matt Hancock entering because obviously there's been a lot of anticipation from the general public people saying it's a disaster people saying oh you know who does he think he is or he should be doing his job but actually when he entered there was quite a lot of animosity from the celebrities who didn't really know how to handle him do you think that he'll be able to win them over yeah I mean having said I didn't watch it I did 
have obviously seen the clips where Charlene White in particular is saying, why are you here? Um, and then later where Matt Hancock is um, trying to be the cool kid at school, boasting that he likes Ed Sheeran, um, which is quite sort of cringeworthy. Um, I mean, there's no, I guess, you know, perhaps it's just professional gatekeeping that they're like, how oh, we're the celebrities, you're the, you're the politicians, they're off our turf. But also, yeah. Who's going to get any credit from the public for being like, oh, yeah, Matt Hancock, I'm so excited to meet you. <laughs> Might as well just make him someone who you can sort of take the mickey out of. And look, uh, uh, James, is it's very easy to underestimate how competitive Matt Hancock is. I think it's also, it's quite difficult for a lot of people who have a sort of natural desire to be liked to understand that Matt Hancock doesn't care about that as much. And for him, it's more important to be known and to be spoken of, and that the sort of worst thing would be to not be talked about at all. Whereas I think a lot of us would just be happy for no one to talk about us unless it was nice things. Um, that's not how Matt Hancock's brain works. So as long as he stays in the jungle and the attention's on him, I think he'll be very happy. And he probably won't care what anyone says to him in the camp. Well, let's see how he does on the Bush Tucker trial tonight. Uh, thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.